Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hi, this is Andy. I have a special offer for loyal listeners of Accelerate. It's a no-obligation, free trial of my zero-time selling interactive online training. Now, I've worked with thousands of sales reps to teach them how to use my zero-time selling to boost their productivity and transform the results. And so if you want to learn the same proven strategies to help you open more doors, have more effective sales conversations with prospects, and close more orders, then my zero-time selling interactive training system is a fit for you. It's incredibly simple to start. Just take out your smartphone and text the word TRUST, that's T-R-U-S-T, to 96000. Now, do you have your phone ready? Send a text to 96000. That's a nine and a six followed by three zeros. Now enter the single word message TRUST and hit send, and you hear right back from me with instructions on how to sign up for your free trial on my zero-time selling interactive training. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. We have a great show lined up today. Joining me is Lee Carraher the author of a very interesting book entitled Millennials in Management, The Essential Guide to Making It Work at Work. Lee's also the founder and president of Double Forte, a digital communications agency headquartered in San Francisco and with offices around the country. So, you know, a compelling argument can be made that business and work and work life have changed in the past 20 years or changed more in the past 20 years than the previous 100, but one of the constants of work is the cycling in of new generations of workers into the workplace you know, each one shaped by their unique experiences and ready to change the world. I mean, it's certainly that way with my parents' generation, the World War II generation, their offspring, the boomers, which I'm, I'm one, I guess, shaped by the cultural upheaval of the 60s and 70s, and then by our kids, millennials, who are the first truly digital generation, shaped by the internet and technology. And unfortunately, another constant is the miscommunication and misunderstanding and mistrust that characterizes the perceptions and work relationships of each generation to the other. So my guest today, Lee Carraher, is going to help us sort out exactly how managers and millennials can thrive and succeed together. Lee, welcome to the show. Andy, it's so great to be with you. Thank you so much. Well, listen, thanks for joining me. So tell us a little bit about you other than what I'd said in the intro. <laughs> um, I'm Lee. I live in San Francisco Bay Area with my husband and two children, one who's almost 18 and one who just turned 15. So 
I don't know how that happened. Um, and I started my company about um, 13 years ago um, here in San Francisco and um, have grown it to have offices in New York and in Boston, also in Healdsburg, California for our wine practice. Very um, nice. Very yeah, it's nice. very cool to be there. Yeah, I think I want to join that practice. Yes, you there. You know, everybody <laughs> does. And then they get in it and they're like, uh, can I go back? Um, <laughs> um, and I'm pretty involved with my community here in San Francisco Bay Area. I'm on the board of several different organizations and just sort of all around busy person trying to do good things in the world. So what was the impetus to start your own business? My business, so, well... Uh, it was not intentional. Uh, it wasn't, I didn't set out, you know, to do this. What happened was in 2001, after 9-11, I decided that I did not want to be in the company I was at. I had been on the United flight from New York to San Francisco one week earlier on mm -hmm. 9-4. Mm -hmm. And it really, um, that day just, you know, just cemented to me how much I was unhappy with my day, uh, or what I was doing every day. Um, and I should not do it anymore. Because that could have been me. So I exited the company, which was very generous to me. They were so generous to me. They they really did try hard to keep me in the company. But I, I just didn't want to do that anymore. Um, and my intention was to take a whole year off. But I actually drove my husband bananas. Um, but my house was pristine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, after about four or five months, four months off, I guess, um, we decided... Okay, he decided that I probably should go back to work. I'm the breadwinner in my family. Got my it. husband is the I'm the chief bacon officer. He's the chief home officer. And I was going back to work, so I was um, heavy into two different job um, searches um, to be client side, company side, and then my mom got diagnosed with um, fourth uh, stage four lung cancer and was given three months to live. And it was very clear that I couldn't keep either of the jobs that I was in the running for and be with my mom. So I pulled out of those job hunts and went to Wisconsin to see, that's where she was, uh, Eau Claire, and to check out the situation. And I realized right then that um, I needed to have a job that let me be where I needed to be for mm -hmm. my family, uh, no matter where they were. I'm the most flexible one of my siblings. Um, and so I created the, the company out of that need. Um, but we also... Um, decided not to, to think about it beforehand and try to drive the things out of the business that drove us crazy at our previous jobs. I have a, I had a business partner who I, who since um, has been bought out and has gone on to much larger agency life. Um, and that's what we've done. So uh, we've evolved the company over time, but in general, the company was built because I needed to have work um, that paid the bills and put roof over our head, um, but from wherever I needed to be in a way that I would thrive, frankly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and um, 13 years later, we are, you know, 35 people by design. Um, we choose to do a lot of things that are revenue, um, revenue limiting, but business and life enhancing um, and with offices where we need them. Very interesting. So something in this experience, since you started your own company, sort of put the sort of, you know, bug for you about, working with millennials mm -hmm. and, you know, telling, helping instruct people and tell people and teach people, you know, how to do a better yep. job in this. And, and so what was things that happened in your business sure. that sort of opened your eyes to that? 
when I started the company, we only hired people who had 10 years of experience. So in general, they were all 32 or older, which was not hard in 2002. You know, couldn't swing a dead cat in San Francisco without hitting lots of people <laughs> who had 10 to 20 years of experience who didn't have work. Um, well, they were all consultants. They were on by definition because right. they didn't have any other jobs. <laughs> they weren't very good business people, but they were a lot of consultants. That's for sure. Um, and that was sort of the plan. It was only to hire people who knew what they were doing. And that was a very, you know, the margin on that kind of business is very low because you're paying really high. Um, the, and I was sort of very happy with it because it was, it didn't mean, I mean, it needed a lot, it needed a different kind of management than I'd had in my previous job, which had six or 700 people, most of whom were under 30. Mm-hmm. But, uh, at 2008, I was thinking about how do I could scale back my time Literally had figured it out, like maybe go to four or three days on September 14th. I figured it all out. On September 15th of 2008, I sat in my office and watched, as we all did, the economy just crumble in front of us. And by 12, you know, by 10 o'clock, I was like, oh, I'll be happy at four days. At 10.30, five days. At noon, six days. At noon, 30, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, by 1 p.m., you're working till you're 80. <laughs> Pretty much. And... um in the you know in the aftermath of that event you know I did a lot of things so we drove all the extra costs out of the business we you know we restructured the people we had in terms of what we were going to do all this kind of stuff but what I realized you know when you're running a business um, with a model that's working and something happens in the in the, either your economy or the economy you need to review your business model because we cannot imagine that the business model that was thriving um, would thrive after this big catastrophic event. So we looked at the business model and I was like, uh, we're going to run out of people with 10 years of experience who know what the hell they're doing. And we decided to hire young people um, and we were going to grow our own. And we decided also that it would be good for the margin and good for the industry in general because we know a lot about what we're doing. We would train people up, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't really think anything of this. I was like, oh, we're just going to hire young people. We'll have to put in some training stuff that I was known for in my previous two jobs. Um, I really didn't think anything of it. So we started hiring. We hired our first millennial, who is fantastic. And I am a millennial champion. You just need to know. I mean, I just believe in this generation. I did not believe, though, for a while. <laughs> I, we hired our first one, and she's fantastic. Great idea. So much energy. Just idea after idea after idea. I didn't quite know what to do with all the ideas. Her first day, she brought a dog to work. And um, I came in a little late that day. I was into the office a little late. I was in a meeting. And there was this dog. You know, where did the dog come from? Oh, that's, you know, Sally's dog. That's not her name, but I'll protect her. Uh, that's Sally's dog. I'm like, do we know the dog was coming? No. Did she ask if the dog could come? No. Did she tell us? No. Is anyone allergic to dogs? I don't know. Well, let's find that out first, right? <laughs> and not only did the dog come, but this big bed, a water filter system. Wait, a, a bed, you said? Oh, yeah. The dog bed. Oh, a dog bed. Okay. A I dog bed. Oh, not a bed bed, but a dog bed. <laughs> okay. A water water dispenser, a kibble dispenser. I mean, she would move this dog in. And um, I sort of befuddled. And then later on that day, I came out of my office and no dog, no Sally. I'm like, where'd the dog go? Where did the girl with the dog go? Oh, she left. She had to go to San Diego. She was going to visit her mom. I'm like, did anyone know she was leaving at 3 o'clock? On no. her first day on the job? Her first day. Did anyone ask? Did she ask if she could leave? No, she just told us. Oh, and by the way, she won't be here tomorrow. I'm like, what the hell just happened? You know? <laughs> so 
I was very um, befuddled. I just so like sort of gobsmacked. And the you know the dog was a service dog, had a red vest and everything. And in it's true around the country, yep. the service dog cannot be asked to leave. Well, this dog is a Chihuahua. This dog is not like you know helping across the street. It's no, not, she's not quiet either. She's picking up the dog, and oh, the dog was actually very quiet. Oh, good. But she's picking up the dog and walking it across the street. You know, so it's not not my concept of a service dog. So I picked up my phone and I called my colleague, you know, who runs another agency in town. I'm like, this just happened. What? What? And she said to me, oh, my gosh, Lee, these millennials are so terrible. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what's a millennial? I had no idea. So um, we sort of settled that down. I'm like, well, I'm not hiring anymore right now because we have to do one at a time. The economy is coming back, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we settled it down. We figured out uh, in the end, I, in about a month and a half, I had six or eight you know, service dogs in the company because she fig- she showed everybody else how to get their dog with a red jacket. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyway, so um, that worked really well. And then in, but by the beginning of 2011, I hired, not I, but my company hired six millennials and within about two months of each other, and they all failed. Either they left or we had to exit them, exit them. and six people failing all at the same time was... A body blow to me. I was I'm known for recruiting my whole career. People have wanted to work in my organizations, and one person could be their problem, but six, all six, could not be their problem. Had to be our problem. Yeah. So what was it? It was that we did not understand them. We did not understand their language was different. The expectations were different. How we managed was different, and so as I looked into it, um, everything was so negative. Today, if you look, if you Googled it, you would say more than two and a half or three million negative entries on working with millennials. And it's overwhelmingly negative. And I just can't be negative about who I'm working with every day. And, you know, and frankly, a business without a millennial is a business without a future. Yeah, absolutely. Basically. So um, we just sort of set out to figure it out. And what came out of that was sort of a, you know, it's all good, man. You know, someone said to me, or you said to me earlier, right? It's Lee. Doesn't this work for everybody? I'm like, yes. That's my whole point. <laughs> my whole point is, if you figure out how to work with millennials positively, everybody benefits. But if you just cater to a boomer or an Xer, millennials will not stay with you. Yeah. So, so like, yeah, yeah, and this is an interesting point for me. It's it's as I talked about in my opening. I see you know, there's this happens every generation. Right? A new generation mm-hmm. comes in, and they're they're more educated than their parents. They're more technologically Absolutely. savvy. They're more worldly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, starting back 100 years, let's use that as just a benchmark. You know, they enter the workforce thinking that they're smarter than their parents were and smarter than you. So sort of get out of their way. So why are the millennials any different? They aren't any different. What we are different, though, I mean, one of the first quotes in my book is from Socrates about this topic, right? <laughs> I mean, that's 400 years B.C., before Christ. It's so, nothing so, so that's why new. So that's why he poisoned himself. Yeah. It's nothing new, right? And I'm a, I have a degree in medieval history. That's a thousand years of intergenerational conflict. So um, it's nothing new. What's different for us is that we're sitting right there. And the things that particularly boomer and uh, older millennial women have been working for so hard in the workplace, work-life balance, equity pay, you know, being able to go to yoga at 5 o'clock, all these things, um, are we've been telling our kids these things uh, for 25 years. It has been the norm. It has been the the conversation that's gone around 
you know, business. Mm -hmm. There is not a narrative that did not include work-life balance in the last 20 years in the, in, in the conversation. Um, well, these kids show up and they'll expect it day one, right? And uh, I can speak as a boomer uh, woman, and my mother was a pioneer woman. Uh, she was, you know, the first woman who got her MBA, one of the, in the first class at MBA for Simmons College. Mm -hmm. Boston, uh, as a pioneer right. in Boston, as pioneers, you know, um, the they're, but they're sitting right with us, right? <laughs> the offices have gone away. We're all sitting together in big pits. And um, it is a bit jarring for the people who work so hard to be able to leave at 5 o'clock or figure out how to have the work and the life and all that kind of stuff. Let's talk about some of these myths then that, that yep. people have. Because you said, you know, you Google it, you get two and a half, three million negative comments mm -hmm. about millennials. So yep. you talk about this in your book. So first yep. myth you have is that uh, millennials are entitled. Mm -hmm. And I disagree. I think millennials are conditioned. They have been conditioned by uh, several things. They've been conditioned by this narrative of work-life balance. They've been conditioned by the um, the culture of trophies for everything. They've, you know, and no, everybody wins soccer and participation trophies and all that kind of stuff. They've been conditioned by the fact that the average grade point average in colleges has risen almost a full point in the last 15 years. The last 15 years that the millennials have been coming into the workplace because the mm -hmm. oldest millennial today is 35. So basically for the last 15 years, we've had millennials enter the workplace with higher grade point averages for the same quality of work than their older colleagues. Mm -hmm. So they, their expectation of their understanding of their work product is much different than the understanding that Gen Xers and boomers had of their work product based on a grade alone. Uh, that's documented. I mean, that's research that's done right. on. It's documented. So those three things together, right, uh, do not bode well if you walk into a hierarchical en entity that has a, a different expectation of work product and does not reward participation. Showing up is not a skill, but all over this country, showing up gets you a nice big trophy. Right. And though that's not the millennial problem, that is that is a parenting problem a more parenting than anything problem. else. Yeah. Right. We caused that. Right. We caused that. They didn't do that themselves. So um, there's this discrepancy between, uh, you know, I think everything everybody wins soccer is awesome until you're in second grade. The problem is it goes on through college. So. Well, uh, but also the fact is that well, I find one of the ironies is that, as you talk about, it's really a parenting problem because the kids always knew what the score was. Oh my gosh! I mean, oh my gosh! I from swear. the time my kids were five years old and they right? played, played, you know, what I call mall ball soccer, where they all follow, right? you know, twenty kids following a big group yeah. around the ball. Right. They knew precisely we, what the score was. Oh, we call it beehive soccer here. Yeah. But yes, exactly. Um, the other piece of that too is that they've been one click away from any piece of information they want, any body they want, one tweet away from changing like what, a you know, JetBlue does on the tarmac. They've had a ton of power in their hands. And to walk into an organization that is not transparent, that is pretty hierarchical, that just tells you what you need to know, right, um, you know, is antithetical to the millennial experience of, uh, of information and access. Yeah. So those two things together, you know, this, this uh, everybody gets a trophy thing, which is not their problem, our problem, and the, that the fact that they have been in a very flat world 
and we are used to, you know, particularly boomers was the boomers are the wait my turn generation, right? We just waited our turn. We knew our turn would come up. Um, that's not the expectation from millennials. They've been able to really have tremendous access to tremendous amounts of information and, and quality of people and, and that kind of stuff. And we should not squash it. So I think, well, I that, think an important point there, too, at least in my perspective, I'd be interested in your take on this, is that sure. I think the millennials are much more accustomed to accepting change. Oh, my goodness, yes. And, and so as a consequence, you know, a lot of what comes across as being entitled is just the fact that they've, they have sort of a why not about things, a why not logic about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, this sort of got driven home to me by a conversation I had with someone who's a pretty senior person in an academic institution that everybody will know if I'd said it. Mm-hmm. And student government asked for a gender-neutral bathroom to be put in one of the classroom buildings. Mm-hmm. And the administration, or some people within Somebody. the administration, went crazy, saying you know, right. how entitled these people, kids were that they would expect <laughs> to be. And the fact is there were you know, two transgender students in the mm-hmm. particular class they were talking about. But it, like, it wasn't even an issue for these kids. Like you know, In college, they said you know, we had had... Uh, Oh yeah, you know we had had unisex bathrooms. So I had unisex bathrooms just, back in the eighties. Yeah. I know, so it's, it's just not a big deal. So why we don't get it? Why wouldn't you have one? Right. It's not entitled. It's just like you've got people that are transgender. You want them to feel comfortable. Why? Why would you not? And so and they just, just say so. They yeah. just seem to be there much more fluid Crazy. in their acceptance of change. Much more fluid. Yeah. Well, I think the things to remember, you know, for so just think. I mean, if you think about just even video games, right? Um, Video games used to, and I came out of the video game business, video games were either on a cartridge or on a CD Mm-mm. that you got, and they were done. They were finished. Today, every Tuesday, you look at your iPhone, and you've got 92 updates, mm-hmm. right? you got 92 updates. So, you know, and a, a video game company does not launch a, uh, a finished product anymore. They launch the first three levels, and then they keep iterating, Right. right. And the iter- and no one launches a complete product anymore. We have a minimal viable product yep. that gets improved by um, we've, we've all read feedback, the same book. right? Min- but but it gets improved by feedback from everybody. So, but this is how they grew up, right? Um, so it's just it's just strange to me. And I think the other piece of that too is that I think there's a bunch of boomers who thought they were all going to retire at fifty. I can tell you, I thought I was going to retire at fifty, and I that that day is come and gone. Um, who are now looking at having to work much longer than they thought and are seeing themselves being, you know, they thought they'd be relevant for their lives because they were boomers and they were the entitled generation when they came in, right? Mm, Boy, were they ever. (laughs) And um, Not me, but all the other boomers. All those other people. Um, But they haven't, you know, a lot of boomers have done nothing to stay relevant in this very fluid environment. And I always tell boomers that are my clients or who are my friends who, who call me about my book, you know, they're like the most important thing you can do as a boomer who needs to work past if you're, you know, in your, if you're in your 50s and you're looking at at least 10 more years of work, which most of us are, the most important thing you need to do is become relevant to millennials, to understand them, to be able to converse with them, um, because you're going to get X'd out. You're replaceable. Everybody's replaceable, you know, um, and if you become known for being able to work in an intergenerational um, situation, uh, your younger colleagues will bring them along, will bring you along with them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Will want to work with you because they also, uh, millennials, value so much mentorship. They value mentorship. Uh, it's, one, it's one of the first things people, all millennials, I mean, in a 
survey, you know, lots of surveys on right. this. Well, the first thing that millennials ask for in the workplace, who am I going to have as a mentor? How often am I going to meet with them? Uh, unlike the mentors we chose when we were coming into the workforce, workforce, you know, I chose mentors I wanted to emulate. They choose mentors they can learn from to avoid the lives they think that are not good, right? <laughs> and sometimes it's a little jarring. So when I uh, work with people on this, I always say, you know, find a great, you know, boomer, find a millennial, you know, millennial wants a boomer um, a mentor or a Gen X mentor. The first thing, the first month I ask people to sh uh, share their reading lists. Like, what do you read every morning? Because it's very different, right? Mm -hmm. And just read the other person's reading list for a month because your eyes will be opened. You will understand sort of the inputs differently. Like what you get from BuzzFeed versus what you get from the New York Times versus what you get from the skim, whatever it is that you're reading, just share your reading lists. And that the understanding the other people's the other person's inputs dramatically changes the dynamic. No, oh, I love it. I love it. Okay, we're going to take a short break here. But we do we're going to come back talk about some more myths about millennials. We're going to puncture some of those or maybe confirm them depending on which one that is. So with me today, my guest Lee Carraher. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. And welcome back with my guest today, Lee Carraher. We're talking about millennial, managing millennials, I guess, and we're specifically been talking about some uh, myths that, that are held about millennials that uh, oftentimes aren't true and, and certainly not reflected in the workplace. So um, one that you talk about is that millennials don't work hard. Mm -hmm. So false. <laughs> no, it's certainly been my experience. It's Very completely false. false. In fact, I'm not sure I've, I always thought that you know, my generation was really motivated because I sort of came up through the early days of the tech business in Silicon Valley and so on. And no, no, this group is this group is really motivated as far as I can tell. And I think um, there is a differentiation between people who are in the tech workforce versus the rest of the world because we are definitely in a bubble here in Silicon Valley. However, um, people who are here think millennials don't work very hard. Um, they don't have a lot of throughput. And my, um, they it looks very different. And I one way to think about it, just a couple examples. Um, because digital, you know, we boomers are more used to working in an iterative, iterative process. You know, you do a draft, you print it out, you give it to somebody, or you send a word document. You know, and then mm -hmm. you track changes. Uh, boomer, I mean, millennials. Uh, some I, we have millennials in my company who have never printed out a document to edit on them. And when I ask for a draft, they send me a Google Doc, a Google link right. that has lots of different colored inks on it and suggestions and all the kind of stuff. And I'm like, that is not a draft. A draft is clean and I will respond to it, you know. <laughs> so they've never, you know, the, the collaborative um, creation process on ownership is not uh, as well defined for millennials as it is for Oh, I'm sorry. That's very well defined. It's very collaborative. It's everybody pile on everybody, you know, different color ink, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it just looks very different. It looks lazy to a boomer who's not expecting it. Why did you send me a link? Why didn't they print it out and give it to me? Why are all these colors here? 
no, accept what you want. You know, don't accept what you don't want. Give me the draft. Right. So it looks lazy. It's not lazy. It's different, right? Or it might look like, you know, um, it might look, their workflow might look very distracted. They have three screens up. They've got their Twitter flying the whole time. They've got their Facebook up. They're chatting. They've got their email. They've got a website, whatever it is, right? And it looks very distracted. I'm not very distracted. They're like multitasking. I'm not saying multitasking is a good thing, but it doesn't mean just because you have three screens up doesn't mean that they're not working hard. It just means very different. And the other piece is that work-life balance means something totally different to millennials than it does to their boomer colleagues. You know, when when particularly working women, uh, boomer working women were coming up through their own careers and forging all new pathways, work and life were very separate. You had your work, and then you left, and then you had your life. That is not the expectation in a twenty-four-seven hour in a twenty-four-seven world and economy, right? And millennials mm-hmm. do not necessarily have that expectation, and they sort of ebb and flow through their day, um, work and life, work and life, work and life, right? Um, and they do force they do force some um, conversation like, "Well, it's my birthday, I don't want to work." Well. <laughs> Okay, it's your birthday. It's Wednesday. It's a big announcement. You're working, you know, or you take that day off. You plan for it ahead of time, but you just don't leave everybody in the lurch, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it just looks a lot different. And I think what what is required is sort of a set of expectations, you know, just saying things out loud. We are, as a as a culture, I think the boomers, you know, we 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 just want to assume everybody understands. Well, that's the first problem that we assume everybody has the same expectations as we do, and we don't say them out loud. Here's my expectation: you will be here at nine o'clock. You know? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. That's, as you said, there's certain expectations that someone should know. That's when they should show up. Yeah. But what's wrong with just making it clear? Well, nothing. Perfect. That's what everyone should be doing. The problem is a lot of people do not do it. I work, you know, I quote a woman in my book who's super smart. Oh my goodness, she's super smart. I would, I would follow this woman anywhere. And she, she called me, and she's just a friend. We we've worked together in the past, blah blah. And um, she goes, you know, I'm gonna have to fire this person. She's really good at her job, but she's always late, and she's so disrespectful, and all these things. And I said, well, she does good work, right? Yeah, she's great work, but I just can't take it anymore and all this stuff. And I said, well, does she know she's late? Well, she should know. I am here at 8 o'clock. She doesn't roll in until 9.30. And I said, and she doesn't see you. How would she know? Right. She's not there. <laughs> and then on the district, you know, I said, but she should know. Those are the hours. I said, did you tell her? No, but she, it's, everybody else is here. I said, but you've never told her. Uh, how would she know everyone else is there? She may just think everyone just got there one minute before her, you know. And another piece on that is, you know, on the disrespectful thing, have you told her not to interrupt you? No. Well, okay. Let's go to the beginning. First, I don't think you should fire her. I think you should have a, a sit-down conversation and use I, – I have this tool in my book called The Wheel of Communication that you can download from my website if you like. Um, that is super helpful. And I said, you know, I walked her through it. I said, Start with the fact that you, know, you come in at 9.30 every day and, you know, and tell her that she's late. And just be ready for her to be super angry at you because you've let her be wrong for six months. She may walk out the door. Oh, she's not going to quit. I'm going to fire her. I'm like, no, no, no. Be ready for her to walk out the door. Do you want her to walk out the door? Well, I want to fire her. She doesn't get to walk out on me. I said, okay, well, okay, let's get that thought out of your mind. Let's start with, let's make sure she understands the rules. 
And then once she understands, you know that she understands the rules and then she breaks them. That's a whole different conversation. Well, you know, two days later she calls. She goes, oh, my gosh, Lee. She ran out the room. She grabbed her purse. She walked out the door. <laughs> She's so mad at me. And I was like, okay, well, it's retrievable. Did you go get her? Yeah, I flew out after her. I, I, I apologize. I'm like, all right, you're on the right path. And, yeah, should you have to do that? No, but do you want to hit your head against the wall for the rest of your life, or do you want to like t- you know, find the path of least resistance? The path of least resistance is expectation setting and communi- in constant communication. Just do it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in in your book, I mean, you sort of summarize you know, sort of five key rules for dealing with millenn- millennials. As we talked about earlier, as you go through these, even though in some respects some boomers will say, well, we shouldn't really have to do this. The fact mm-hmm. is, it's just plain good management for everybody, good regar- management. regardless of. So, one is be absolutely clear on vision, purpose, and role mm-hmm. responsibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to do that for everyone. Everybody. Right? That's, you know, my book jacket, you know, you have it there, I guess, is a, you know, has a big ampersand on it because um, it's about the and. It's and, you know, we all work together, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and, it, truly, if you if you figure it out for millennials, everybody benefits. Yeah, I mean, I mean, across the board, across the board, what, everybody uh, benefits. I mean, we all did better jobs when we understood what the hell we were doing, right? Excuse me. Sorry, well, we have to put a little thing on that. Well, when was that's good? I think we can avoid the <laughs> the, the <laughs> MA rating with just with us just that word. So, yeah, but I mean, it's just like if you have people and you want to make sure that they're working to their level of productivity, they should be. Well, they should have an unambiguous understanding of what it is mm-hmm. they should be doing. Yeah, and I think what many boomers grew up with was a just because I said so. You know, well, I'm doing this because I'm said so. And that worked. In a different economy, in a, in a different economy, it worked. Uh, in a knowledge economy, in a flat, you know, in an access economy where everyone can get information and, and access to other people, it just doesn't work. It's not worth it. So, um, you know... My my experiences, and this is what we were doing in my company when we were failing so bad. We were not setting expectations. We were not reinforcing what the purpose was. We weren't explaining everybody's roles. Um, so people were like, "Why am I doing this?" And what you know? But when we did it, oh my goodness, we actually. So we have my company, PR marketing firm. Um, you have to track our time for our clients. Mm-hmm. We saw that our extra time, our non-billable time, went down. Just with this expectation setting. Yeah. We just saved Not so much surprise. time. Not a big surprise. Empirical, right? Empirically yeah. empirically true. So, you know, it just hits you over the head. And it know? wasn't just, I'm willing to bet, it wasn't just the millennials. Everybody. It was oh, everybody, no, no. everybody across. Everybody, everybody, exactly. everybody. So, um, another one you talk about. Management. Yeah, another one you talk about is acknowledge achievement and celebrate successes. I mean, mm-hmm. just good management practice. I, you know, I had this conversation with somebody a couple weeks ago on a, a show about celebrating successes, small successes mm-hmm. in sales. I mean, you want to do that for everybody, regardless. I mean, it's not, everybody. you know, we don't have to be so stoic as we thought, you know, that was really the key to productivity is, you know, we're just going to suck it up and go do, and we don't need to have the pat right, on the back. Right, right. No one's ever worked that way. They've always worked better yeah. with acknowledgement of, of doing a good job and, and the pat on the backs, positive reinforcement. I don't mean by that is to have trophies and medals and, you know, no, but all this stuff. You don't have to do that. But just saying thank you and good job goes so far. Oh, my gosh. Well, I said you acknowledge achievement and success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just showing up, as you talked about. Showing up is not a skill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
baseline requirement of the job. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the other thing, then, too, another one you talk about, and this is, I think, gets back to sort of this respect thing, is that, again, I think boomers, and I guess the, maybe they'll call it the senior generation at any point in time, always has this expectation of somehow they've earned this respect that you right. know, their word is sort of inviolable. And, mm-hmm. and I have to admit, I've always been bad about that in my career. I, <laughs> and I had a boss once tell me, he said, can't you ever just say yes? <laughs> so maybe I was a millennial ahead of my time, but, but I, you know, it wasn't that I didn't respect him. But I didn't just accept the fact he was right all the time. Right. Exactly. And that's that was definitely true for boomers. And you think, you know, if you asked millennials, I mean, I'm sorry, if you asked Gen Xers who is more entitled, boomers or millennials, 80-something um, percent of them will say boomers. <laughs> yeah. I, so, you know, I think there's something definitely. to that. Well, I think the other piece of that, another myth about millennials is that they, they get pegged as a me generation. It's all about themselves. And that is definitely not my experience. My experience is that they're a we generation. And the fastest way to put a millennial into the corner in the fetal position is to tell them that they let the team down. And this is something I learned when we were failing so bad. You know, we would talk to people like, well, you know, mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. great work. You really aren't living up to your potential. We thought you could do better than whatever it was. And they could care less when I thought about their potential. Who's the hell? You know, who's she? <laughs> but when I shifted that conversation to say, you didn't do a good job. You need to go back into the drawing board. And here's the gap you need to fix because you really let the team down and someone else had to pick up your ball. Never happened again. Never unilaterally never happens again. So, you know, um, it just looks different than the way we would have said it. That's all. Right. Right. All right. Well, last question for you is, is Mm -hmm. you Reference the Gen Xers, right? They're sort of mm-hmm. the generation caught in the middle between the oh yeah, squish the, the squish between the boomers and the millennials. Why do they feel so hard done by the mm-hmm. millennials and the boomers? Um, you know, Gen Xers. By, well, first of all, boomers are about seventy-eight, seventy-nine million. Millennials about eighty million. Gen Xers about forty-five billion. So, first of all, there are fewer of them, um, which means you know, on the on the surface of it, would mean. Oh my gosh, there's so much opportunity for Gen Xers because there are not as many of them. So there'll be lots more opportunity. Uh, what they have been, you know, and I think the heyday of the Gen X um, generation was really in the late 90s, uh, 98, 99, 2000, when most of them were coming into the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, particularly on the coasts, you know, in 98, 98 99, 2000, if you could breathe, you got a job, right? Um, However, what the Gen X, just by virtue of the fact of how how old they were when uh, nine, when the Nasdaq imploded in 2000, mm-hmm. then 9-11, and then 2008, uh, Great Recession, 2008, 2010, 2010 in there, they have been hit by these huge economic um, catastrophes right as they were, you know, where they should have been pivoting dramatically in their careers you know 25 year olds 26 year olds Mm -hmm, boom mm -hmm. 2000 happens 26 27 year olds boom 9 11 happens 35 40 year olds boom 2008 happens just think about the time you know how old they were when those things happened and um when you so what happened no number one right number two is those catastrophes also meant boomers who thought they were going to retire did not retire so tens of millions of boomers uh, thought they were going to be ret- 
literally, thought they were going to retire between 2008 and 2011, say, mm-hmm. who are still working because they lost so much in their retirement uh, funds. They got displaced or, that you know, maybe they had bought another home and then, it, you know, the whole market went under, you know, the whole thing, right? Um, that boomers are working much longer. 33% of boomers think they're going to be working just this year. 33% more boomers think they're going to be working past 75 than thought that three years ago. Wow. So that's just, and so they're trying, they're sticking in the job. Well, if you stick in the job, there's no elevation, right? There's no opportunity for an exer. At the same time as this, you know, the tsunami of millennials is flooding the market who are much cheaper. Their parents are letting them live at home so they don't have to make as much. And, you know, so they just get really, frankly, screwed by, the fact that they're smaller at the wrong time. If they had been in a, you know, if they if these catastrophes in the economy had happened ten years later than they did, they wouldn't. We would not be seeing this issue. Right. But it was. It's a. It's a. You know, ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand and one, two thousand eight to two thousand and ten, just, just. I mean, it couldn't happen at a worse time in someone's career. Right. Okay. Well. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, I know, not much to respond to that, but it, I mean, it is, I know. It, you can you can see the pattern. It is it is really unfortunate. But yeah, such un- so unfortunate. Yeah. Unfortunately, you can't choose your parents, right? So you can't choose your parents, and you know if you, well, you can't choose your parents, and if your parents are um, helicopter parents, tell them to stop. And if you think you're a helicopter parent, if you're like showing up to your kids' uh, interviews for jobs, <laughs> stop it. You're doing. You're hurting your children. You talk. About, have, you talk about that, and I. I uh, I've never experienced it myself, but I, I can imagine I, that it happens. I, I know parents that would. Yeah, I have probably two do that. clients. I have two clients who know have no parent policies. What? Policies. No parent at interview policies. They need to have a policy for that. They have to have a policy because so many parents were showing up for their kids' interviews. I myself had a parent call me to ask if I could. This woman said, "You know, you're meeting. You're gonna meet with my son later today." And I'm looking at my calendar. I don't see her son on my calendar. I'm like, well, "Actually, I'm not meeting with him. I don't know what you're talking about." Oh no, you're meeting with my son. He's coming there today. And my assistant sort of, you know, throws a piece of paper and you know he's meeting with so and so. And I'm like, "Oh no, he's meeting with such and such." Well, why aren't you meeting with him? You're the president. <laughs> and I'm like, "Exactly, right?" Nor will and, I ever at this point. I mean, well, well, I'll I'll continue. And then she said. She got indignant, and then she said, <clears throat> well, the reason I'm calling is because he can't make it. He has another interview at that time, so I thought I would just do it for him. No, wait, wait, wait. Yep. You're serious. The mother was going to come take the interview. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm sorry. I was, and I am, I have talked to people in the, in the, process of researching for my book i had talked to people who that had happened to but it had not yet happened to me so in you know my head knew that it was going on but my body visceral reaction to this was like oh you are hurt and i said you are hurting your child he's no longer in the pool um does he know you're calling yes did you ask you know and i was just like okay i'm sure that that child that 24 year old child did not ask his mother to call me no it sounds and I'm like sure that the mother said you know what i'll just call her and she'll take it from me this is ridiculous get out of your kids your adult kids lives well it's like a bad not a bad sitcom it's like a funny sitcom one of my memorable 
uh, episodes of uh, Everybody Loves Raymond is when uh-huh. Marie, the character, when the older son Robbie is interviewing for a job for the FBI, that she goes in and talks to the guy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Right. But this is pervasive, pervasive in all industries, in all states in this union. It is it is ridiculous. Back to my point that this is a parenting problem. Yeah. Not a millennial problem. All right. Well, we'll send the message out. Stop, 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 stop. Please so, stop. Please stop. <laughs> so, well, Lee, I want to thank you for being my guest, being my guest today. Tell people how they can find out more about you and about your book. So the best way to find out about me is to go to my website, www.leecarher.com. And on there, I have several tools you can download, like the communication circle that we talked about. And you can hear about my book, see about my book there. It's also on Amazon um, and iTunes. And um, you can find me on Twitter at at Lee as well. All right. Great. That information will be on the show notes webpage. So thanks for joining me. And Friends, remember, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help accelerate your success. And subscribing to this podcast is an easy way to do that because then you'll make sure you don't miss any conversations with top business experts like our guest today, Lee Carraher, who shared her expertise about how to manage and accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.